Like many of you, I'm tired of being told how and what I need to believe in order to fit in or to be a good Christian. I don't want to give up on faith, but I refuse to buy into oppressive religious systems. This podcast is a place where we talk to people who are asking the hard questions of faith that actually matter in this life. Welcome to Jesus Never Ran. The church is wrong to argue that the Bible justifies any sort of discrimination, oppression, marginalization of those who are not straight. Well, the reason why you ain't got no black folks in your congregation is because we don't show up to places where we're not welcome. And we know we're not welcome based off the conversations you demand that we don't have because of the questions you insist on us not asking because of the answers you don't want to live. And the idea that the best being in the universe can't come up with a better solution to the problems of the universe than to torture people forever, eternally, you just start thinking, if that's as good as God is, this is a pretty depressing universe. This week on the show, we have spiritual director, psychotherapist, and Benedictine oblate Ellen Heratunian. My own experience of Jesus, my own understanding and study of Jesus said that I don't think he's pushing anybody out. I think there is room for all Hey, before we get going too far, a reminder to support our wonderful sponsors, Infinity Beverages at www.infinitybeverages.com and Rise Nutrition. You can find them on Facebook at Rise Menominee. That's Rise with a Z. And make sure you ask for Angie. All right, continuing on in our discussion about the Bible, and of course, when we talk about the Bible and Scripture, we're also going to talk about faith in general. But I'm really excited for you to hear from Ellen Heratunian because she brings with her a unique perspective that I do not believe we've dug into yet. So let me introduce you to Ellen Heratunian. My name is Ellen Heratunian. had prayed for a more interesting last name when I got married. My maiden name was White. My husband is of Armenian descent, so I got a great name. I'm a spiritual director and a psychotherapist and also a Benedictine oblate. And the oblate means one who is offered up. That just means that I've connected myself to a Benedictine monastery. And uh, connecting with ancient Christian traditions has a lot to do with what I hope to bring today. Um, spiritual director is my favorite role. It's a way of bearing witness to what God is doing in people. There's just so many people who are questioning the church, questioning theology, questioning everything. And thousands, thousands have left the church. Thousands are even leaving the faith. And I find that they make up a good portion, not all, but a good portion of my spiritual directees because they still seek God, but they cannot find him in the church anymore, which is heartbreaking, but they're looking for spaces where they can ask questions, where they can uh, explore and they can figure out for themselves, is this God thing real, as uh, often the language that's given to me. The folks that I tend to work with have really been disillusioned by the church in it. And what's really important to note is they've never been disillusioned by Jesus. They're, they're still cool with him. They think he's fine. They may no longer believe that he's divinity, but Jesus has never disappointed anyone. But what I have noticed is that in general, what these folks have been impacted by is what our whole Western culture has been impacted by, and that is a true um, disenchantment of all reality. That this started way back in the Enlightenment era, and I'm sure you're familiar with all of that sort of stuff, but this flattened understanding of reality, even though we speak of God, even though we speak of faith, 
there is an understanding of just the world that we live in that has been very much devoid of the supernatural, devoid of God. And that makes a huge difference in how we show up in the world, even though it sounds like it's all woo-woo. That has discouraged a lot of folks from the church because the church has also bought into that because we have reduced faith to propositions, to cognitions, to transactions. If we say, you know, come, come follow Jesus, it often involves, well, here's how you need to understand the atonement, and here's how you need to understand various things as far as our theology goes. And the way we show up in the world often is connected to political positions. And for a lot of my directees, that just makes no sense whatsoever. They're very confused, very confused and very disturbed by how much of the church doesn't seem to understand Black Lives Matter, for example. It's like, how, how are you not interested in this? Um, because their understanding of Jesus, as we talk together, is that Jesus would be with the oppressed. Jesus would be listening to those who've been harmed. Uh, that's where he identified. So they're so confused by how Western Christianity has kind of moved in a different direction to kind of create a more insulated, isolated way of being, conflated with the American dream, so to speak. Uh, so I think I see their movement as very good because they're seeking this Jesus of Nazareth. But sadly, they're not often finding him in the church. They're not seeing that we view ourselves as our brothers and sisters keepers. I keep hearing that sort of thing, that spiritual directors, pastors are working with individuals who are really struggling to find God inside the church, which is just mind-blowing to me. All right, let's back up a little bit because I think anytime we hear from a guest on Jesus Never Ran, it's really important to get a little bit of the backstory, specifically the backstory of their faith journey. My, my faith journey is interesting. I um, came up in um, more of a kind of a congregationalist church. My dad was Catholic. My mom, I believe her family was mostly Methodist. And so they didn't really bring us to church when we were kids. But I think I had questions about God. I remember that. I do remember when my family moved, moving next door to this um, girl my age, which was great because she became a close friend. She brought me to a church youth group and we went to a Billy Graham crusade. And that's where I became a Christian. I received Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And all of that makes sense. It was wonderful, actually. Met my husband later, uh, went to seminary, all of the stuff in the evangelical world. I was already beginning to have questions, though, because it seemed, again, that it was very insulated. I really struggled with attitudes towards women. That just made no sense to me whatsoever. But we were in seminary in the 1980s in Dallas when the AIDS virus came uh, to be, and all of a sudden became a huge problem. And it really was difficult for me to see the Christian community at large, and we're in, a very, we're in the Bible Belt, so it's a very Christian area, to see them turn their backs on the terrified, dying gay community. And just to judge them, well, you know, that's God's punishment for you. It was just, it felt very callous. And it took a while before we had any idea of how it was transmitted and how to take care of them and all of that. So they were really in dire straits. I was at RN at the time. That was my undergraduate degree. Later, I got a counseling degree and theological degrees. But at the time, because I was a nurse, I was kind of in the thick of dealing with that virus. So it, again, I was like, wouldn't Jesus touch the lepers? Um, wouldn't, wouldn't Jesus respond differently to this? So that was the beginning of a big crack for me. I didn't realize it at the time, but my journey really parallels the folks that I'm seeing now where I'm just, they're recognizing, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense. Jesus is cool. 
but how the church is treating others and showing up in the world doesn't connect for me. So we moved on after seminary. My husband took a pastorate because we were in a place where women weren't allowed to be pastors, even though at the time, if I was honest with myself, I do believe I felt a call to that. However, I wasn't allowed to entertain it. So I didn't. I became a psychotherapist instead. Moved to a more reformed theology type of church, EPC, uh, which was actually a really good experience. But again, over time, there's some cracks in the theology and you begin to ask questions and um, seeking a bigger God, a different expression of God that would make more space for those whom the church in, I think, sincerely very often feels that they should push out. Whereas my own experience of Jesus, my own understanding and study of Jesus said that I don't think he's pushing anybody out. I think there is room for all I eventually became a Benedictine oblate, and the Benedictine spirituality, which is very ancient, very Christian, is based on um, Christian hospitality, which means we receive, we uh, view every single person as Christ. And that just grabbed my heart when I first saw that. I thought, that is life-changing, that is transformative, to begin to see everyone that way. If you've never heard this concept before, it might spin your mind a little bit because often the first response to it is, are you saying that everyone is a God or that everyone is Jesus? And that's not it at all because Jesus and Christ are two separate words. Jesus is a name. Christ is a description. What Christ means is it means God's dwelling within. And so when we see everyone as Christ, it means that we see everyone as a vessel, as a person within whom God resides. Some people even go so far as to include nature as a whole and see Christ in trees, Christ in mountains, Christ in rivers. And it's not some sort of new age idea. This is an ancient concept that has been around a lot longer than many of the things that we hold as foundational to this day. All right. Well, I promised you that we'd continue to talk about the Bible. So let's hear how Ellen, as a Benedictine oblate, how she views the Bible. I think it's important, again, that we're people who understand that we need to constantly be polishing our lenses because how we read anything is how we read everything. We come to the Bible with a very modern, very rationalistic worldview, so that is how we are going to read it. Whereas the ancients saw the Bible through the lens of Jesus himself. So any interpretation of the scripture that doesn't jive with Jesus is probably not a good interpretation because in Hebrews it does say that Jesus is the exact representation of God. So we do have a God in the Old Testament that looks very different than Jesus. And I do believe those stories in the Old Testament are really important. I love the scriptures. I'm a total nerd when it comes to the scriptures. But I gave it up years ago for a long time because I found it so disturbing until my lens started to get polished, until I started to be able to see, wait a minute, if I look through this Jesus that I am getting to know more deeply, everything looks different. Everything starts to come together in a more unitive way, that there is a larger story going on that when I first became a Christian, I didn't hear. It was all about the, here's your ticket to heaven if you say this prayer. Then there was some theology in that, versus the idea that the heart of God is to bring 
all of us in everything, the cosmos as well, ultimately to union and communion with God himself, that that is our end. And it's this beautiful movement that you see all throughout scripture. And I really don't hear much about that. What we hear about is a lot of warnings, a lot of disaster, a lot of, well, those people, rather than what is God up to that could possibly make that happen at the end because it will. I love that concept of thinking about the lens with which we look at the Bible. It makes all the difference in the world. Now, just like we did last week with Brandon, since we're talking about the Bible, I don't just want to talk generalities. So I wanted to ask Ellen if she could dig in a little bit to a specific issue in the Bible. And of course, she picked genocide. So one thing that comes to the forefront of my mind is the idea that God commanded genocide, that uh, the Israelites were supposed to absolutely wipe out this other group of people, and that was God's command. In fact, God would be mad if they didn't finish the job, which just does not at all connect with God as revealed in Jesus. So as we look at it through the lens of Jesus, I'm thinking, what is this about? Because obviously, this God, or their understanding of God doesn't seem to fit. And that that was it right there. It's like their understanding of God. What we're looking at is Israel as an archetype, an actual community, an actual people group, but an archetype of all humans. And they are growing in their journey as far as coming to know this God who's revealed himself to them. And it takes a long time. The Jews were not actually monotheists until after the exiles. So they had a long journey, as do we. And so they are instructive for us because there's a lot we see even in Christian believers today who would have no problem with genocide, who really don't want to look at the genocide of the Native Americans that was done by Christian people who came from Europe. They don't want to look at the uh, vilification of, say, Islam and others within ourselves and say, is that really of Jesus? Did Jesus really ask that of us? So rather, we can look at those stories of Joshua and Judges, which is interesting because my professor, who was an expert in the book of Judges, and he says, I know that's sick and wrong because it's a weird book, but the whole point being that after this, what looks like this victorious situation in Joshua, Israel just kind of fell apart in the book of Judges. Like, why was that? What was the disconnect? there what was wrong and there probably was some things that were wrong because they were taking on and obeying a view of god that actually probably didn't jive with god as god really is and then things get fixed in ruth and all of that but it's instructive for us to take a look at these stories and say where is my heart in this how why am i pulled towards war and wanting to hurt my enemy whereas jesus says to love my enemy what is that in me that loves to scapegoat and loves to project and feel safer when I know who the bad guy is and that we've got our sights set on them and we can keep ourselves safe. That's a typical human worldview. Jesus turns that on, on its head, where Jesus himself, through his own death, where we put Jesus to death, basically, because here Jesus is bringing this new way of being, this new idea of kingdom into the world that is pretty disruptive and scary for a lot of us, especially here, I think, in the United States, where we are very comfortable in the American dream. We're very comfortable with our view of mammon and money. Um, Jesus turns some things upside down, and we want to squash that pretty quickly. That's so true. It's amazing that we follow this Jesus who, as Ellen said, turned everything upside down, yet we so quickly try to put it right side up again because that just feels more comfortable. 
Now, one of the challenges that I ran into, and I know a lot of people run into when we're talking about the Bible, is we were indoctrinated with an understanding of how we were supposed to read the Bible. We question that understanding, and then that leaves us feeling like, I don't know what to do with the Bible. I don't know how to read it without getting triggered. I don't know how to read it in a way that's actually going to be helpful. And Ellen, with her understanding and context within ancient traditions, has some beautiful and wonderful ideas. Like I said, it is a story, you know, where we see Israel struggling with the very same things we struggle with and the very same idolatries that we struggle with today. And we see God's movement throughout all of history to the point of bringing forth Jesus that really turns everything on its head and gives us a new way of being. And it's very hard for us to conceptualize kingdom of God. You know, we still kind of willing to conflate kingdom of God with the American dream, so to speak, versus something in which the poor are really cared for and lifted up, where the captives are set free, where the blind are given sight. I mean, we, we don't quite understand kingdom that way. But what I have found with uh, for myself, as well as my directees, is we start small. I mean, they will do an ancient practice called Lexio Divina, where we will sit and listen. And it's really about listening to the scripture, portions of the gospel, and then respond to questions from them. And rather than a Bible study saying, this is what it means, we let the text speak for itself, specifically let Jesus speak for himself. And I've been amazed. I've been amazed at what they will bring forth from the text there. It's powerful. For example, there was um, a passage that we used not too long ago. It was a passage that brought up the idea of the eschaton of you know, the end of the world, so to speak. And um, a lot of them have been taught really scary things, really divisive, angry things about the end of the world. But as we worked through this passage, and they began to look at Jesus, and it was basically, if I'm remembering right, it was the Jesus' commandment to go forth and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all I've commanded you, and all of that, that beautiful passage. And they at first were reactive and said, well, evangelism is is kind of like colonialism or going in and forcing people to believe what we want and so as we worked through it they began themselves to look at well what were jesus's commandments was to love god and love others what if we went and did that what if we went and taught how to love god and love others what does that look like and it became a very rich conversation and finally at the end the conclusion was you know what i think this means i think it means love wins And I just thought that was a brilliant interpretation of this passage. If you look at it as how Jesus actually spoke, he he spoke of his commandments of being love. And if we bring that into the world, if we are people who bring that type of love, not just sentiment, but this kind of love into the world that does look at it the way Jesus does, that does care for the poor and the oppressed and the sick and the imprisoned and all of that, what a change in the world that would be. So I thought, yeah, I think that's a, and of all these classes I've taken, that is a really good uh, summary of, uh, of the scriptures. Love wins. So, <laughs> so I'm just saying that to say that it, through these practices that really don't impose any way of looking at the scripture, Lexia Divina, they are able to wrestle with it and apply it to their own lives here and now and begin to, to get a picture of God that is very different perhaps than what they've heard before. I think the reason why this type of approach to the Bible is challenging for us is because we're Americans 
and we like things fast and we like to learn things quickly and we like to call things truth and absolute because it makes us feel safe. But when I read about Jesus, never one time, never one time in the gospels do I get the sense that Jesus came to make us feel safe. I confess I understand the desire to be safe and to kind of keep all the scary stuff out there. But what brings us beyond that? What drew me to go up to Standing Rock when the Lakota Sioux were standing against the U.S. Army to try to protect their own land and yet another breach of treaty? There's been hundreds of breach of treaty between the government and the Native folks. And what led me to go into one of the marches here in Denver with Black Lives Matter and to hand out water and to to be someone there to support and to listen. Because I'm kind of a coward, you know, I'm, I'm not this you know, super brave activist type of person, but I think we could, there's all kinds of cool books that talk about the Bible in terms of, you know, cultures and people groups and a lack of race and all that kind of stuff. But I really think what's most been most helpful for me is to really begin to look at the spiritual practices that transform me. Because what I'm not hearing below a surface level is that how we follow Jesus, taking up his cross, uh, this journey of kenosis, of emptying myself out, which would include emptying myself out of my prejudices and my fears and even my theological beliefs. I mean, literally everything. The ancients, John of the Cross and others speak of a purification. Let's just let it all go. Whatever you cling to that makes you feel like, I got this now. I got it, God. Thanks. All of it. You know, this journey of emptying ourselves out of anything, everything, except for God. Jesus uh, in Philippians chapter 2 went even further with that. But that is our path. So for me to let go of my presumptions and my assumptions and that kind of stuff so that there's space for God to fill me. There's space for me to begin to see the world through his eyes and to recognize that where else would Jesus be but with the oppressed and the, the marginalized and those who've been crushed over and over and over again. Where else would Jesus be? When I read the Gospels, he would be right there in the, in the marches and, and um, being with those folks and affirming their journey. We, we see it in um, Exodus, right? When the Pharaoh was crushing the Israelites. He was giving them extra work and not giving them straw to make their bricks. And I mean, literally a social injustice was happening right there. And God heard their cries and God uh, brought the Israelites out of Egypt and made them his chosen people. Where else would God be? I feel like in a lot of ways, we've been taught to be Pharaoh and to say, well, if they're struggling, it's their own fault. They should have obeyed this. They should be working harder. They should do X, Y, Z. And it's like, we really aren't entering into the reality of their stories which Jesus is the greatest example of that. The empathy of God in that God took on flesh to live with us here, to be a high priest who knows all of our struggles. He, that's empathy, to be able to actually understand what life is like as a human in this world. He's our example. So to enter into their stories, to actually listen, I find that there's a lot of my friends, white Christians, who um, don't want to read the books. They don't want to understand white privilege. The phrase white fragility is offensive to them. They don't want to hear it. And I understand how scary and uncomfortable that is. But it's like if we just listen, just lean in, just move your body out of your safe space to listen and to learn. It's the beginning of empathy. It's the beginning of being like Christ in this world. When I read the Gospels and I read about Jesus, never once do I get the disillusion that he's calling me towards safety. 
Yet in our modern Christian circles, we gravitate towards that very thing, towards safety. We worship in spaces with people that are a lot like us, people who think like us, people who believe like us, people who act like us, people who even look like us. And we surround our faith journey with a net of safety. That's never what Jesus stood for. When you read the Bible, or when we dare to read the Bible as Ellen challenges us to, we might hear things that are awfully scary. We might sense that God's actually calling us towards the voice of the oppressed, and that is almost never a safe place. Special thanks to Ellen Heratunian for such wisdom, such grace in this conversation. So many important things. I mean, she had such great stuff in this episode that you might want to go rewind this and listen to it one more time. And you can fast forward through the times that I talk. Next week, we are going to build on some of the concepts that Ellen laid out for us so well this week when we talk to the founder and director of Celtic Way, Father Scott Jenkins. As always, if you want to support this podcast, make sure you subscribe, give us a five-star rating, and write a review. And until next time, keep walking.